from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. I want to talk today about environmental justice in our Catskills community. The other day, I got on a call with an old friend of mine, Taylor Jaffe, who I have known since we were both eight years old and we went to the Homestead School together. These days, after graduating from Colgate University, Taylor is working as the Environmental Justice Coordinator with Catskill Mountain Keeper, whose mission is to protect the region's forests and wildlands, safeguard air and water, nurture healthy, equitable, and sustainable communities, empower environmental justice communities, and accelerate the transition to a 100% clean and just energy future in New York State and beyond. So I wanted to get in touch with Taylor to get a better idea of what exactly environmental justice is and how it relates to our communities. And Taylor is an outstanding communicator, so I am going to just go ahead and play most of our conversation without too many edits. But as a heads up, the quality of our video call did get a bit choppy at times, so if you notice any minor audio quality issues, Well, come back next week and we will talk about local broadband again. Anyway, let's dive into this. Taylor started off by talking about her long and storied history of working with Catskill Mountain Keeper. You know, I kind of came to this position because I grew up in Sullivan County in Livingston Manor. Um, My family runs and works Snowdance Farm. So, um, you know, it's kind of been a long winding road to get to Mountain Keeper back in 2011 uh, when they got really involved in the fracking fight. Um, And Leif, this is fun. This was also when the homestead was (laughs) kind of getting us involved, too. I was donating uh, some of my profits to Mountain Keeper. So long winding road to get here, but always kind of been curious about environmental justice and, you know, how we can uh, create better outcomes for our community. So getting to do this work has been really rewarding. My understanding of environmental justice, and I want you to jump in and, and let me know if there's parts of this that I'm, I'm missing of it is essentially that we as a society have a long history of relegating hazardous waste, uh, landfills, uh, things that would impact water supplies negatively to low-income minority communities, and also vice versa, relegating low-income minority communities to areas that are environmentally questionable at best. Is that an appropriate understanding yeah. of, of what the backstory here? Definitely. That is a, that is a really good, yeah, part, <laughs> good way to kind of describe the backstory. I think when we, you know, when we think about environmental justice, it's really kind of a lens for, um, you know, looking at both inequality as something that's just descriptive, how things are, and then injustice, which kind of gets more into how things ought to be. And that's really, you know, where we look at how, um, you know, hazards and benefits are distributed and, you know, disproportionately uh, burdens are 
distributed amongst communities of color and low income communities. And then we have to think about, okay, (laughs) what do we do now? What do we do with this? Um, And you uh, you kind of started to get into a little bit of the chicken and egg question too, uh, that comes up a lot in environmental research. And that is, you know, whether uh, say bill gets cited and then, you know, the property value goes down. So it's, you know, cheaper and low income communities end up there or, you know, whether we have an already low income and or minority community and then we cite a landfill in their community. So a a lot to think about, Um, but ultimately it really comes down to the fact that uh, we don't want to be citing these burdens with anyone. That's really interesting the way you put inequality and injustice. Can you Mm -hmm. dive a little bit more into the relationship between those and kind of how they differ? Sure. Yeah. So just to kind of reiterate, because I know for me, it was something that I, you know, hadn't had to explicitly think about before. I really kind of got into all of the literature, but inequality, we can really think of it as just descriptive. So um, for example, like throughout the United States, there is an unequal amount of uh, landfills that are cited around low-income communities and communities of color. But then when we get into injustice, it's really looking at the reasons for those sightings. It's how we have to think about how things ought to be and really put that moral lens to it and kind of dig a little bit deeper, think about what we want our outcomes to look like, and then, you know, how we got here in the first place, what systems got us here, and then how we can move forward. So kind of to throw another (laughs) buzzword in, but also really important for for the environmental justice uh, kind of framework, you know, it's this intersection of so many different kind of systems. So intersectionality is a, it kind of comes from feminist literature, that term um, coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it describes how race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics overlap with one another. So as we're thinking about environmental justice and the justice aspect, specifically, you know, there's race, there's class, gender. Um, I think, I don't know all the statistics off the top of my head, of course, but I think it's something like single mother households are um, just statistically more likely to be burdened with environmental, uh, environmental hazards. So all of these things really just kind of gather together and they're part of that uh, that how things ought to be side, the justice side of, um, you know, the environment that we live and work in. What are some major environmental justice, maybe stories or victories to improve justice for those impacted by environmental injustices that happened maybe on, on the national level that we maybe are familiar with and maybe haven't previously associated with the just phrasing environmental justice? So definitely just the phrasing of environmental justice um, really kind of came out of a lot of work in the 1970s and the anti-toxics movement. So down south, you know, already dealing with racial injustice, overlapping with the fact that a lot of Black and African-American communities specifically were dealing with toxic waste. Um, And that's, you know, from that came the term environmental racism, and from there we got environmental justice. So that's kind of the start of this framework and this new lens to look at things. Um, and not to say that other communities weren't facing uh, environmental justice hazards before the 1970s, but I think that's really when uh, the 
the big push for this literature and this research came about. And then, you know, one victory on the national level, we've got the, you know, Biden has the Justice 40 and we have the White House Environmental Justice Action uh, Committee, I believe, WEJAC. Um, and just, you know, little things like that, that, you know, as we keep implementing them and as we can keep thinking about environmental justice at this big scale, just benefits everyone in general. Um, you know, I think the first step is just education is really the most important thing here. Um, you know, you can't <laughs> you can't fight what you don't know. So um, just kind of adding adding these pieces and keeping the language in, you know, getting it into common practice and into common knowledge is really important. And then to kind of take it more statewide for New York State, um, one huge win for environmental justice has been the um, the Climate Leadership and Communities Protection Act. Um, and that got signed into law in 2019. And one really exciting thing for that is it they created the Climate Justice Working Group. And the Climate Justice Working Group created uh, a definition for disadvantaged communities under that law. And because of that definition of disadvantaged communities, 35 to 4% of our, you know, kind of climate spending is going to benefit these disadvantaged communities. So long, long-winded <laughs> way to say that, you know, the more we can kind of keep this language in common practice, like we can actually get... <laughs> funding at, after a certain point and move resources to to those communities who've been hit first, worst, and, and hardest. I know that another big step in, in New York State has been the passage of the Green Amendment to the Constitution, which was Prop 2 yeah. on the November ballot this past year. How is something like that to actually put into our state constitution language that says, we all have a right to a clean environment. Have have you seen any upshot from that that might be changing the game already? And and if not, what are you expecting to see from that? So that is so exciting. <laughs> and and that was a really um, you know, I, I got to do a little bit of putting up posters and campaigning and that kind of thing for that, which was a lot of fun. And even just in doing that, like around Sullivan County, I, I focused a lot in like Liberty and Monticello, just because those are more of our urban kind of areas. Um, it, it was interesting to kind of talk to different shop owners, different people as, you know, I was passing them and, you know, see who kind of knew what I was talking about, who had questions. Um, and overall, like a lot of, a lot of people were kind of like, what is that for? <laughs> Which, you know, was awesome to be able to, to explain, uh, you know, the purpose of the Green Amendment and what it could do for everyone. Um, since it passed, uh, I haven't myself seen too much upshot of that, but it's really going to come down to how we get it interpreted by our New York courts. So um, in New York State, I think there's three other states that have some kind of Green Amendment where you're guaranteed a right to a healthy environment. Um, York, we kept our language really broad, <laughs> which, you know, was pretty purposeful in that. So that way, as it kind of goes through the court system, it can be refined, but we wanted to start really broad. So that way it can, it can have somewhere to go instead of like need to be teased out and picked apart and things like that. So it's been really exciting and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful for what we can do with it.
I also want to talk about some of the work that, that you're specifically doing with Catskill Mountain Keeper. I know that in a webinar that you gave back in March, you talked about your mapping out of, what was it, PJAs, uh, potential environmental justice yeah. areas. Is that right? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what those are and the significance of your work in, in mapping those out? Sure. Yeah. So um, it's been great to be a Catskill Mountain Keeper. And, you know, in kind of coming to this space, uh, Catskill Mountain Keeper has always always really been about environmental justice just because we've been protecting, you know, resources and fighting for communities and doing all of this, this environmental work that is just people related and people driven, um, which is really at the heart of environmental justice. But, uh, you know, it wasn't as explicit before. It wasn't explicitly mentioned in our mission statement. And, you know, this is a new position to really just be kind of thinking explicitly about environmental justice in our region. So what I did, I looked at the CATS region in terms of six counties, Delaware, Green, Otsego, Schoharie, Sullivan, and Ulster counties. And then I kind of got a look at who, so different potential environmental justice areas representing these communities. Um, what environmental hazards and issues by county. And then I mapped that to see where there's overlap between these potential environmental justice areas and these environmental burdens. And, you know, what was really interesting about this, um, you know, I'd kind of done similar work studying at Colgate University, um, but to kind of take it more granular at like looking at six counties, it was really interesting to see to see the data reflected in places that I knew. <laughs> so, you know, for example, looking at Sullivan County, we have a lot of uh, potential environmental justice areas that are specifically uh, minority areas. So a potential environmental justice area is a census block group that um, either meets a certain threshold to be a low income community, so it has a low income population equal to or greater than 22.82%. Um, or it can meet a threshold for being a minority population. Um, so that number differs in urban versus rural areas just because there's usually a, a greater number of uh, people of color in urban areas. But, um, you know, we have a lot <laughs> in, uh, in Sullivan County, which, you know, I'm a person of color too. So it was like, oh, wow. Like, nice. I didn't know how, how many people, I just wasn't even seeing myself. Um, so we have a lot of minority communities, a lot of a few income, and then a good that are both low income and minority. And, you know, as I was looking for these potential environmental justice areas, it's not necessarily that there's anything bad or wrong happening there, but it's really just, it gives us another lens and layer to try and catch people before they fall through the cracks and before we cite something there. So it's really just, again, it's just bringing this to these areas and to these communities. Um, so it was very cool to, to map it out and then overlay those maps with different hazards, um, just because that, for the most part, hasn't been done, um, except for really with the new uh, disadvantaged communities criteria that the Climate Justice Working Group has been mapping. I know that in the findings of your mapping research, you found that Sullivan County has three water systems with health-based violations of, quote, notable concern, I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. All three overlap with 17 different 
potential environmental justice areas, which is, I think, far more egregious than what you found in other counties in the Catskills region uh, in terms of that level of overlap. Can you talk a little bit more about that finding? Sure. Yeah. So as I was looking for, you know, different uh, that what different environmental hazards and burdens, um, water contamination was a big thing to look at. Uh, the caveat here is that, you know, I'm only able to look at public water systems just because that's the data that I have. And a lot of people in, you know, we're in rural upstate New York, they have uh, a private well system. So definitely excluding a, a good chunk of the population. But even looking at these public water systems, you know, I I and that notable concern. Um, so for me, the notable concern kind of is about uh, places where it's a water system where the community is really accessing that water a majority of the time, um, instead of something where it's like a gas station that you're not necessarily going to be uh, coming into contact with that water a lot. So looking at the public water system uh, data, you know, and this is all over the past 10 years. So I don't, I don't believe that any of the systems were experiencing notable concern at the time I did the research, but, you know, for anyone who is curious and, you know, I have time to go back in again and update this as it's a new year, um, you're able to go onto the EPA safe drinking water information system, and you could put in a county, you can put in a town, and it'll let you know, uh, you know, how the water system is doing. But yeah, for Sullivan County, there were three systems of concern. So they had some kind of health-based violation with some kind of contaminant that, you know, could impact human health. And it overlapped with 17 potential environmental justice areas. And those were around Monticello, Liberty, Fallsburg. So also where we see that there's a lot of our minority and minority slash low income populations. I'm pretty sure that that the violations have been taken care of, but, but still, there's still infrastructure questions we can ask ourselves. Um, and also we can look at, dig a little deeper and look at response time to see how long it took to fix those issues. So definitely an interesting finding. And, um, you know, this research is definitely preliminary and that there's a lot more that we can do to dig deeper. Were there any other findings in your research that really surprised you or things that you are particularly concerned about? Yeah. Um, one one other thing that I found surprising was that we don't have any state or federal uh, air monitors throughout the Catskill region. <laughs> um, I definitely wow. wanted to be, yeah, I wanted to huh. be able to look at, you know, air pollution data and air quality data just because that has been, you know, that's a pretty big environmental justice indicator. And especially in Sullivan County, we also have a lot of, uh, you know, higher of asthma than a lot of the surrounding counties. So, you know, I was thinking I might be able to find some uh, some information there, but we, we don't have any air monitors uh, with, you know, publicly available information yet. What should we be looking out for in the coming months or maybe just over this, this year of, of 2022 in terms of progress that you hope to see in the Catskill region or maybe New York State as a whole uh, in terms of environmental justice? Well, I think something that's good for everyone to be looking out for is, you know, you could go on to the DEC website 
and that's the Department of Environmental Conservation. You can uh, add your email to stay updated and like toggle, you know, your county, toggle the things you're interested in. Um, there's one specifically for environmental justice, and that's just one way to really stay updated and informed. And, you know, in addition to doing that, I think it's exciting. And the more people that can be involved in, um, you know, there's a comment period right now for the definition of the disadvantaged communities and also for the draft scoping plan that has to do with the Climate Leadership and Communities Protection Act. You know, those are just some uh, some ways that the public can make their voices heard as we're, you know, doing so many awesome things that are meant to benefit our communities. You know, it's it's good to have community inputs that way, <laughs> you know, all the benefits go where they're supposed to go. Last question for you. Yeah. Taylor, if you were a benevolent dictator and you had uh, infinite <laughs> funding, resources, and, and uh, legislative power at your disposal, what would be some day one changes that you would want to enact to improve the situation for environmental justice in New York or, or perhaps nationwide or perhaps worldwide? Oh my gosh, this is the best question. I, um, you know, I think for me, I want to get to the root cause. So something that I believe is the root cause to a lot of, you know, having these environmental burdens and harms is the the way that we create waste. Um, so I would, um, I would ban plastic. <laughs> we wouldn't be making any more plastic. I would want to switch our infrastructure and our electricity grids to renewable sources of energy. Um, and then as much as we can begin recycling and reusing um, reusing as much of our products and produce and, and that kind of stuff, <laughs> um, I would I would enact that just because I think I think having all this excess waste is a pretty big problem. And I think the culture right now that we have around production is a is a pretty big root cause of, you know, the fact that people do have to get placed next to landfills and, and other sorts of burdens. If you ever decide to run for benevolent dictator, you got my vote 100%. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yes. Is there anything else that you want to add? And how can folks learn more about your work and about the work of Catskill Mountain Keeper? We are, um, you know, people can look up Catskill Mountain Keeper online. We have, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, just Catskill Mountain Keeper. And for my work specifically, I would love to offer my email to the community um, just because, you know, I've got this landscape analysis of environmental justice that's really at a bird's eye view. But in addition to that, it has to be supplemented with uh, lived experience and community knowledge. So I would welcome anyone to reach out to me at Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at CatskillMountainKeeper.org. Um, and please, I'd love to continue the conversation there. Well, between New York State's Green Amendment, the implementation of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, and the work that Taylor and the rest of the team with Catskill Mountain Keeper are doing, this is a topic worth keeping an eye on in our region. And of course, as there are more developments, our team at WJFF Radio Catskill will be sure to keep you in the know. 
Thank you so much to Taylor Jaffe for taking the time to chat about her work with Catskill Mountain Keeper this week. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from Radio Catskill. Have a great week. Thank you.